Duke, you're not used to seeing me on Sunday night, so. Good change. <laughs> I was gonna say, so if you're expecting John, you're sorely disappointed. <laughs> Duke. So, yep, turn to lesson 33 in your book, which is kind of crazy. You were right there. Lesson 33, and then John 18 is where we'll be again, but um, as well. John 18. Actually, before we read the scripture, I actually want to read the, uh, it's actually the intro to the previous lesson, but I think it goes more along with here, out of your book. Um, of course, this morning, we had talked about the betrayal, the arrest, and the first parts of the trial of Christ. Remember, we talked about the four acts, that um, kind of his passion in the four acts, and we kind of looked at the first three again. Everybody remember what act number one was? was act number one. Betrayal and his arrest. Act number two. Yep. Kind of yeah, talking about his trials, moving a little bit further on there. His trials before Annas, Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin. And then Act three, again, is Peter's denial. So Act four is kind of the topic of the lesson today, which is his crucifixion, his passion. But the intro to the lesson last, uh, not last week, this morning, uh, 32, because it's talking about with Pilate here. It says, Pontius Pilate was the fifth procurator or governmental representatives of Rome in Palestine. He held that office from AD 26 to 36. So right in the middle of uh, Christ's um, ministry there. His name Pontius was his family name. And the title Pilate mean one armed with a javelin. So that's where his two names come from, they mean. It says, little is known of Pilate's early life except for a few legends, which might or might not be true. He was said to be the illegitimate son of Tyrus. It says, in Rome, he allegedly committed murder and was exiled to Asia Minor, where he subdued a rebellious people, thereby regaining the favor of Rome, and was awarded the governorship of Judea as a result of that. And he seemed to enjoy tormenting the Jews. He never seemed to understand them. And as Josephus would point out, he offended them by bringing idolatrous Roman standards into the city of Jerusalem. And another time, he hung gold shields inscribed with the names of the Roman gods on the temple itself. You can imagine what that did to uh, the people. As he also had his soldiers kill some Galileans while they were sacrificing in the temple. Luke 13.1 actually references that. Um, very incident. It says they were present at that season, some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. It's referenced in Luke there. But Pilate's actual headquarters was up in the north in Caesarea, north of the Sea of Galilee. It's actually where his headquarters were. But he came to Jerusalem every Passover to keep order among the population because, again, would swell during Passover. Jerusalem would get so packed. So that's when he would come and kind of keep the peace at that point. Of course, after the Jewish leaders condemned Christ, they brought him to Pilate, who is probably living in Herod's palace near the temple at that point. And as we'll see, from the beginning of the hearing, he was torn between offending the Jews again and condemning an innocent person. He tried every way of which he could think of to convince him to release Jesus, as we'll see. He didn't want him to complain to Rome again about his behavior, so putting politics before justice, he finally gave in to their demands to crucify him. And according to Josephus, Pilate's political career ended a few years later after that when he tried to suppress a small rebellion in Samaria and killed an innocent man in the process. The Samaritans complained and he was recalled to Rome, which is exactly what he didn't want to have happen in this situation. His name then kind of seems to have just disappeared from history. Eusebius, which is another historian, says that soon afterward, wearied with misfortune, he took his own life. 
One tradition says that he committed suicide in Vienna, whereas another legend says that he was banished to a mountain, now known as Mount Pilatus, on Lake Lucerne in Switzerland. There he allegedly plunged into the lake and to his death from a precipice. So this Pilate was the man before whom Jesus stood condemned. So as we, as we look at it, consider how Jesus would have felt standing before such a man. So this is John 18. Here we're going to read actually the rest of John 18. We'll start in verse 28, and then we're actually going to read a little while into chapter 19, verse 38. So we're going to be reading for a little bit here. Um, Chapter 18, verse 28, we'll go around the room. It says, Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas into the hall of judgment, and it was early. And they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring ye against this man? They answered and said unto him, If he were not a malefactor, who would not have delivered him up to thee. Then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him, and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spake, signifying what death he should die. And Pilate entered into the judgment hall again, and called Jesus, and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did another others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own, own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered unto the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from this. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To the to this end was I born, and for this cause came I unto, into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews, and saith unto them, I find, no, I find in him no fault at all. For ye have a custom that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Will ye therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? cried they all again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Yep, keep going until we'll go up to actually read through verse um, 37, actually, of this chapter. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns, uh, planted a crown of thorns, and put it on his head, and they and they put on him a purple robe. And said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto him, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. And then came Jesus forth, wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe. Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priest therefore and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the son of God. And Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid. And went again into the judgment hall, and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Oh, sorry. <laughs> then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have the power to crucify thee and have the power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore, he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrews, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover. And about the sixth hour he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? 
The chief priests answered, We would have no king but Caesar. And delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of the skull, which is called <coughs> in the Hebrew Gomorrah. For they crucified him, and two other with him, on either side one, and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title, and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city. And it was written in Hebrew, and Greek, and Latin. Then said the chief priest of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What, have I, what I have written, I have written. And the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top to the left. They said therefore among themselves, Let's not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, They parted my raiment among them, and my vesture they did cast lots. These things therefore the soldiers did. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by, whom he loved, he said, He saith unto his mo mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be filled, said, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, and put it upon his head, and put it to his mouth. Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The Jews therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was an high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with them. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true that ye might believe. These things were done. The scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again, another scripture saith, They shall look on him whom they pierced. And at, oh, we're just there. We're good. We'll read it next week. We'll get it next week. This lesson, of course, continues the narrative that we began in the, the previous lesson. Of course, we've already reviewed kind of those first three. Um, so, following this trial before Annas, Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin, who collectively represented you know, the Jewish religious establishment. Jesus stood ready to face Pilate, who represented the Romans. And as, as I was reading this, isn't it so interesting? Why didn't they stone him? Isn't that what they normally did? The, you know, the Jewish form kind of of capital punishment, so to speak? I, that just struck me as I was reading this here. It's, why didn't they stone him? That's what they did to Stephen. That's what they did to a lot of other people, but they wanted them crucified. So about, again, approximately 5.30 a.m., the weakened Savior was being led from that, remember the pit? Think about that. Forced to walk across the city, you know, to Pilate's palace. Again, you see the palace guards, probably see the mob approaching, get Pilate, prepare him for here. You know, again, he, Pilate came only to Jerusalem a few times a year because his headquarters was in Galilee. Whenever he was in Jerusalem, he would stay at the royal palace. And inside the palace was like a large judgment hall where criminals were tried. And a large balcony, you know, faced an open paved square, you know, sometimes where occasional outdoor activities were held. And because it was the Passover, if you remember the wording, the Jews didn't go any farther than the open court, lest they be defiled by entering the house of a Gentile and entering into a place that had leavened bread. Therefore, they didn't go any further. So that's the point at which we ended kind of last week. So now we're picking it up here. It's really interesting, this whole interaction between Pilate 
and Jesus. Now, Pilate demands to know the accusation against Jesus. That's what he first says, no, what accusation do you bring? They didn't really offer anything except to say that he deserved to die. If you look in verse 29 of chapter 18, what accusation bring ye against this man? They answered and said to him, if he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. But they never give a reason here. So Pilate then takes Jesus inside for a private conference, you see. So at this private conference, two kings meet, an earthly king and a heavenly king. And the ensuing conversation showed why Jesus is called the king of kings. Here, we won't read it, but 1 Timothy 6, you can see, talk, talks about that. Um, the potentate is what he's called in that, who before Pontius Pilate delivered an honest confession, I think is what it, how it words there. Pilate was no match for him here. Of course, art thou a king then? Pilate asks him. Christ responds, thou sayest that I'm a king. And it's interesting. It's almost as if Pilate's admitting something here with what he says. But no, Jesus states that he, come, that he came into the world to bear witness of the truth. Doesn't that sound kind of familiar to like other passages? If you look in verse 37, to this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Does that ring a bell? Back to John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice. It talks about also several different times in that passage. You're talking about the sheep, they know the shepherd's voice. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. To which Pilate responds, what's truth? His question's interesting in light of what Jesus had just said, because it proved beyond a doubt that he was not of it, because he didn't understand what he said. He had no idea what he meant. But then you see Pilate, at this point, going back outside and proclaiming to the Jews that Jesus is innocent. Verse 38, when he had said this, he went out and said, I find no fault in him at all. But his statement just kind of further enraged him at this point, so he knew he's going to have to come up with something else. Thinking that they would surely choose, no, Jesus over Barabbas, he offers them the choice. Kind of gives the example as his custom was, no, to release a prisoner, kind of his concession to the Jews, you know. So he offers them the choice, no, Jesus or Barabbas here. You know, think about what an insult that was, you know, the Lord. Offering a murderer, a rebel, someone who killed somebody, him, and who they chose over that. It's interesting in, um, of course, Pilate, we've kind of talked about these, they choose Barabbas over him. The first part of chapter 19 here talks about when Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. In Isaiah 50, verse 3, it says, I gave my back to the smiters, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. The Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. So Jesus was scourged here. Again, we're going to talk more about this in just a few minutes in the physical part. But the Roman legionnaire was stepped forward with the whip in his hand, and it's not often what we think of as like a whip, like a long, like a bull whip type thing. It would have been a very short whip consisting of several heavy leather thongs with two small beads of lead attached near the end of each one. And of course that would be brought down with full force on Jesus' shoulders, his back, and his legs again and again. Talks about, no, the Jews had the rule, no, 40 lashes, but they always did 39 in case they miscounted. Most likely that was not even. It would only be stopped when the centurion in charge would deem that the person was close to death is when it would stop. So who knows how long that lasted for. But when it's done, very unrecognizable mass of human tissue probably at that point. Again, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself a little bit there. So then they would, you see him at this point, they pick him up, 
and they plait a crown of thorns at this point. I don't have a picture of this, but um, the crown was an instrument of torture, basically. And that, that they, again, kind of you've seen it, you kind of can picture some things there. But the type of crown that they would have used here, the thorn was quite possibly constructed from a, a species of palm tree that's found around Jerusalem, known as the Phoenix Dactylifera, whose, from whose stem would have um, inf inflexible thorns or spikes that would emerge, sometimes 12 inches long. So not like your little things like that. And again, they don't bend, they don't break. And then the crown would be so affixed to the head that sometimes the unbending spikes would sometimes pierce the very skull with that. So you think about that. So after having this affixed to his head, the, the soldiers would throw a purple robe over his shredded back and shoulders, shove him around in a circle, you see, cry out mockingly, Hail, King of the Jews, and they smote him with their hands. Pilate would then present him to the mob. You see that verse 4, brought him out. I bring him out forth to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. So then why did he allow the scourging and the torture? This is the second time he said that I find nothing wrong with him. So why did he, why was he letting this go on? He obviously was a very cold-hearted, cruel man. Think about it. Because the behavior he allowed was against all Roman law because no one could be scourged unless they had been found guilty in court. And he just proclaimed him, second time here, I find nothing wrong with him. Now twice, again, declared him innocent. But still the crowd wasn't satisfied. They wanted him dead. It's interesting, if you look in verse 6, he declares him innocent. He brings him out. Verse 6, when the chief priests therefore um, saw him, they cried out, Crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Third time, he's declared him innocent here. And then the Jews, it's interesting, this is really interesting. The Jews startle him by saying that Jesus claimed to be God. You look in verse 7. The Jews answered, their, answered him, We have a law. By our law, he ought to die, because he made himself the son of God. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid. Isn't that interesting? And he went again into the judgment hall and saith unto Jesus, Whence? What's whence? What's that mean? From where? From where or what place art thou? Kind of an interesting question, isn't it? But Jesus didn't answer him. Very similar to the Sanhedrin. He answered him not a word. Again, once more, Jesus had the upper hand again. Pilate was now trapped. He believed that Jesus was innocent, but he was also fearful of his claims of deity here that Jesus made. And if you let him go... The Jews were going to tell Caesar that he let a traitor go. So choosing politics over justice, he turns him over to the soldiers to be crucified. We have no king but Caesar. Yeah, right. <laughs> Who do they think the Messiah was going to do? The, uh... It's interesting. They're very manipulative, weren't they? They knew exactly what to say to get what they wanted in the whole situation. It's just plain yellow. So again, they place a crown of thorns. We already talked about this. Declares him innocent. And then he finally turns him over to the Jews, well, to the soldiers, to be crucified. So this article I'm going to read here is the rest, most of the rest of the lesson, then we'll look at a couple questions, but is that called, it's called The Passion of Christ from a Medical Point of View, written by C. Truman Davis. There's a couple pictures here and there. It's actually in the front of your book, or not in the front of your book, but in um, lesson 33. But um, as, you, as you read this and as you think about it, I hope it just gives you a deeper appreciation for 
your Lord and what he went through. It's no easy to think of all the crucifixion. We know what it is. Yeah, it was bad and such and such, but kind of can really just kind of like gloss over it and think about it. So it says, in this paper, I shall discuss some of the physical aspects of the passion or suffering of Christ. We'll follow him from Gethsemane through his trial, scourging his path down the Via Dolorosa to his last dying hours on the cross. So I became interested in this about a year ago when I read an account of the crucifixion in Jim Bishop's book, The Day Christ Died. I suddenly realized that I had taken the crucifixion more or less for granted all these years, that I had grown callous to his horror by a too easy familiarity with the grim details and a too distant friendship with him. It finally occurred to me that as a physician, I didn't even know the actual immediate cause of death. The gospel writers don't help us very much on this point because crucifixion and scourging were so common during their lifetime that they undoubtedly considered a detailed description totally superfluous. So we have the concise words of the evangelists. Pilate, having scourged Jesus, delivered him to them to be crucified, and they crucified him. So I am indebted to many who have studied this subject in the past, and especially to a contemporary colleague, Dr. Pierre Barbet, a French surgeon who's done exhaustive historical and experimental research and has written extensively on the subject. The infinite psychic and spiritual sufferings of the incarnate God and atonement for the sins of fallen man I have no competence to discuss. However, the physiological and anatomical aspects of our Lord's passion we can examine in some detail. What did the body of Jesus of Nazareth actually endure during those hours of torture? This led me first to a study of the practice of crucifixion itself, that is, the torture and execution of a person by fixation to a cross. Apparently, the first known practice of crucifixion was by the Persians, which is kind of interesting. Alexander and his generals would bring it back to the Mediterranean world, to Egypt and to Carthage, and then the Romans apparently learned the practice from the Carthaginians. And as with almost everything that the Romans did, rapidly developed a very high degree of efficiency and skill in carrying it out. A number of Roman authors, Livy, Cicero, Tacitus, comment on it. Several innovations and modifications are described in the ancient literature, and I'll mention only a few of which may have some bearing here. So the upright portion of the cross right here, or stipes, could have the cross arm or patibulum here, the stipes, the patibulum, attached two or three feet below its top right there. This is what we commonly think of today as the classical form of the cross, which is called the Latin cross. However, the common form used in our Lord's day was the tau cross, shaped like the Greek letter tau or like a T. In this cross, the patibulum was placed in a notch at the top of the stipes. There's fairly overwhelming archaeological evidence that it was on this type of cross that Jesus was crucified. The upright post or stipes was generally permanently fixed in the ground at the site of the execution, and the condemned man was forced to carry the patibulum, apparently weighing about 110 pounds, from the prison to the place of execution. Without any historical or biblical proof, medieval and Renaissance painters had given us our picture of Christ carrying the entire cross. Not the only thing <laughs> they uh, did <laughs> without solid evidence. Many of these painters and most of the sculptors of crucifixes today show the nails through the palms. Roman historical accounts and experimental work have shown that nails were driven between the small bones of the wrists and not through the palms. Nails driven through the palms right there would strip out between the fingers when they supported the weight of the human body. Says the misconception may have come about through the misunderstanding of Jesus' words to Thomas. No, observe my hands. Anatomus, anatomists, both modern and ancient, have always considered the wrists as part of the hand. So, a titleus or small sign was often stating the victim's crime was usually carried at the front of the procession and then later nailed to the cross above the head. This sign with its staff nailed to the top of the cross would have given it somewhat the characteristic form of the Latin cross. So it kind of would have made it maybe look something similar to that. The physical passion of Christ begins in Gethsemane. Of the many aspects of this initial suffering, I shall only discuss the one of physiological interest, the bloody sweat. It is interesting that the physician of the group, St. Luke, is the only one to mention it, which is interesting you find it in Luke's gospel. 
He says, and being in agony, he prayed the longer, and his sweat became as drops of blood trickling down upon the ground. Every attempt imaginable has been used by modern scholars to explain away this phrase, apparently under the mistaken impression that it just doesn't happen. A great deal of effort could be saved by consulting the medical literature. Though very rare, the phenomenon of hematidrosis, or bloody sweat, is well documented. Under great emotional stress, tiny capillaries in the sweat glands can break, therefore mixing blood with sweat. This process alone what could have produced marked weakness and possible shock. As we shall move rapidly through the betrayal and arrest, I must stress again that important portions of the passion story are missing from this account. This may be frustrating to you, but in order to adhere to our purpose of discussing only the purely physical aspects of the passion, this is necessary. After the arrest in the middle of the night, Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas, the high priest. It is here that the first physical trauma was inflicted. A soldier struck Jesus across the face for remaining silent and being questioned by Caiaphas. The palace guards then blindfolded him, mockingly taunted him to identify him as they passed by, spat on him, struck him on the face. In the early morning, Jesus, battered and bruised, dehydrated and exhausted from a sleepless night, is taken across Jerusalem to the praetorium of the fortress Antonia, the seat of the government of the procurator of Judea. Pontius Pilate. You're of course familiar with Pilate's action in attempting to pass responsibility to Herod. It's talked about in other Gospels. Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch of Judea. Jesus apparently suffered no physical mistreatment at the hands of Herod and was returned to Pilate. It was then in response to the cries of the mob that Pilate ordered Barabbas released and condemned Jesus to scourging and crucifixion. Because there's much disagreement among authorities about the scourging as a prelude to crucifixion. Most Roman writers from this period don't associate the two. Many scholars believe that Pilate originally ordered Jesus scourged as his full punishment and that the death sentence by crucifixion came only in response to the taunt of the mob that the procurator was not properly defending Caesar against this pretender who claimed to be the king of the Jews. It's kind of interesting. Preparations for the scourging are carried out. The prisoner is stripped of his clothing and his hands tied to a post above his head. It is doubtful whether the Romans made any attempt to follow the Jewish law in this matter of scourging. The Jews had an ancient law prohibiting more than 40 lashes. But the Pharisees always made sure the law was strictly kept, insisting that only 39 lashes be given. In case of miscount, they were sure to remain within the law. The Roman legionnaire steps forward with the flagrum, or flagellum, in his hand. It's a short whip consisting of several heavy leather thongs with two small beads of lead attached to the ends of each. The heavy whip is brought down with full force again and again across Jesus' shoulders, back, and legs. At first, the heavy thongs cut through the skin only. Then as the blows continue, they cut deeper into the subcutaneous tissues, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, and finally spurting arterial bleeding from the vessels and the underlying muscles. The small balls of lead first produce large, deep bruises, which are broken open by subsequent blows. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons, and the entire area is an unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. When the centurion in charge determines that the prisoner is near death, the beating is finally stopped. The half-fainting Jesus is then untied and allowed to slump to the stone pavement, wet with his own blood. The Roman soldiers see a great joke in this provincial Jew claiming to be a king. They throw a robe across his shoulders and place a stick in his hand for a scepter. They still need a crown to make their travesty complete. A small bundle of flexible branches covered with long thorns, commonly used for firewood, are plated or formed into the shape of a crown and then pressed into his scalp. Again, there's copious bleeding as the scalp being one of the most vascular areas of the body. After mocking him and striking him across the face, the soldiers take the stick from his hand and strike him across the head, driving the thorns deeper into his scalp. Finally, they tire of their sadistic sport and the robe is torn from his back. 
This had already become adherent to the clots of blood and serum in the wounds, and its removal, just as the careless removal of a surgical bandage, causes excruciating pain, almost as though he were again being whipped, and the wounds again begin to bleed. In deference to Jewish custom, the Roman return his garments. The heavy patibulum, remember that, of the cross is tied across his shoulders, and the procession of the condemned Christ, two thieves, and the execution detail, headed by a centurion, begin its slow journey along the Via Dolorosa. There's some pictures in your book of some archaeological stuff there. In spite of his efforts to walk erect, the weight of the heavy wooden beam, together with the shock produced by copious blood loss, is too much. He stumbles and falls. The rough wood of the beam gouges into the lacerated skin and muscles of his shoulders. He tries to rise, but human muscles have been pushed beyond their endurance. The centurion, anxious to get on with the crucifixion, selects a stalwart North African onlooker, Simon of Cyrene, to carry the cross. Jesus follows, still bleeding and sweating the cold, clammy sweat of shock. The 650-yard journey from the Fortress Antonia to Golgotha is finally completed. The prisoner is again stripped of his clothes, except for a loincloth, which is allowed, the Jews. The crucifixion begins. Jesus is offered wine mixed with myrrh, a mild analgesic mixture. It says, you see from the Gospels, that he refuses to drink it. Simon is ordered to place the patibulum on the ground, and Jesus is quickly thrown backward with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist, and he drives a heavy, square, wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly, he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flexion and movement. So not like this, but to, enough to allow some type of movement. The patibulum is then lifted in place at the top of the stipes, and the titleless reading, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, is nailed in place. The left foot is pressed backward against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees moderately flexed again, not straight, but flexed. The victim is now crucified. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails and the wrists, Excruciating, fiery pain shoots along the arms to explode in the brain. The nails in the wrists are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward to avoid this stretching torment, he places full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, there's searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of the feet. At this point, another phenomenon occurs. As the arms fatigue, Great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, nodding them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles, your chest muscles, are paralyzed, and the intercostal muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Finally, Carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he's able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in the life-giving oxygen. It was undoubtedly during these periods that he uttered his seven short sentences, which are recorded. The first, looking down at the Roman soldiers throwing dice for his seamless garment, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The second, to the penitent thief. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. The, th <clears throat> excuse me, the third, looking down at the terrified, grief-stricken adolescent John, the beloved apostle, he said, Behold thy mother, and looking to Mary, Woman, behold thy son. The fourth cry is from the beginning of this 22nd Psalm. Again, you can, all the gospel writers record these in various places. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent parcel asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. 
Then another agony begins. A deep crushing pain deep in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. Let us remember again the 22nd Psalm, the 14th verse. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. It's now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids has reached the critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. The markedly dehydrated tissues send their flood of stimuli to the brain. Jesus gasps his fifth cry, I thirst. A sponge soaked in pasca, the cheap sour wine which is the staple drink of the Roman legionnaires, is lifted to his lips. He apparently doesn't take any of the liquid. The body of Jesus is now an extremis, and he can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. This realization brings out his sixth words, possibly little more than a tortured whisper. It is finished. His mission of atonement has been completed. Finally, he can allow his body to die. With one last surge of strength, he again presses his torn feet against the nails, strengthens his legs, takes a deeper breath, and utters his seventh and last cry. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. The rest you know. In order that the Sabbath not be profaned, the Jews asked that the condemned men be dispatched and removed from the crosses. The common method of ending a crucifixion was by crew refracture, the breaking of the bones of the legs. This prevented the victim from pushing himself upward. The tension could not be relieved from the muscles of the chest and rapid suffocation occurred. That's how crucifixion often would end. The legs of the two thieves were broken, but when they came to Jesus, they saw that this was not necessary. Apparently, to make doubly sure of death, the legionnaire drove his lance to the fifth inner space between the ribs, upward through the pericardium and into the heart. The 34th verse of the 19th chapter of the Gospel according to John, and immediately there came out blood and water. Therefore, there was an escape of watery fluid from the sac surrounding the heart and the blood from the interior of the heart. We therefore have rather conclusive post-mortem evidence that our Lord died. Not the usual crucifixion death by suffocation, but the heart failure due to shock and constriction of the heart by fluid in the pericardium. So we've seen a glimpse of the epitome of the evil which man can exhibit toward man and toward God. This is not a pretty sight and is apt to leave us despondent and depressed. How grateful we can be that we have a sequel. A glimpse of the infinite mercy of God towards man, the miracle of the atonement, and the expectation of Easter morning. It's interesting, again, how they would normally end crucifixion. There's so many abnormalities with everything, with this whole situation, how Jesus was in complete control. Again, they would break their legs, which again would prevent them from getting up to get a breath, and then crew refracture. But they didn't do that. Christ. In Numbers 9, verse 12, Actually, verse 11 says, The fourteenth day of the second month at even they shall keep it and eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it under the morning, nor break any bone of it, according to all the ordinances of the Passover. They shall keep it. You see in John, These things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. Now, some people talk about, no, Jesus manipulated things. No, he thought he was the Messiah and made things happen can't control where you're born. You can't control things when you're dead. <laughs> and I doubt the Roman soldiers were trying to make Jesus the Messiah by fulfilling the scriptures and things, you know. And it also, thinking about the, the spear, and again, another scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they pierced. You can see that in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, and also back in Psalm 22. In that same passage. 
I think it's good to have a reminder sometimes on some things. It's so easy to just hear things, and especially in church growing up like we have, kind of you know it, you know, and it kind of just kind of you can gloss over it and stuff. But it's good to really think about things sometimes, even when it's not be pretty. But to really appreciate what Christ went through for that. And again, most likely on the cross for several hours is what that would have been going through. Not including everything else that happened before that. The scourging, the night, the, the beatings, everything that he went through. And what's the first thing he says? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So you get in the garden, no. He's saying this to Peter, I think, after Peter chops off his ear, no. And I think that I can tell my, talk to my father, essentially, and he should not give me more than 12 legions of angels presently. It's interesting, it's been, I've seen it said, no. Imagine heaven watching this. Thinking about the angels were ready, but the command never came. crazy thinking about that it is finished it's kind of like a victory's cry isn't it let's look at some of the questions here actually go back to lesson 32 and look at a couple of the questions here real quick and then we'll um, we'll finish up a couple of the questions from uh lesson 32 this kind of goes back to the scene in the garden. It says, what emotions do you think Judas may have been feeling as he stood with the crowd that was arresting Jesus? Kind of makes you wonder, what was Judas's motive really in this whole thing? What did he really think was going to happen? Because it obviously didn't pan out how he thought it was going to. Because you see in Matthew then, the next morning when this stuff's going on, that's where he goes to the chief priests and, you know, I've sinned. I've betrayed the innocent blood. You know, what's that to us? That's when he casts the money down and goes out and hangs himself. So what do you think, but again, what do you think Judas may have been feeling as he stood with the crowd? Potentially. Seeing Christ following and just, you know, figuring nothing would come of it. Or, no, Jesus is not going to let anything too bad happen. You know, but again, it kind of seems like, what did you really think was going to happen in your expectation at all? So if you were one of the soldiers, what would have amazed you most about the scene in the garden? Remember, I am he. What happened? Yeah, you're coming off. And he heals his ear. So what might have caused Peter to deny that he knew Jesus? Then sleeping. Then praying. So what would you have thought about Pilate's conversation with Jesus if you were a Roman in his court? If you didn't know Jesus, you're like, what's the big deal? <laughs> Why would you crucify us? He seems to be having some trouble here with this thing. And the, uh, again, Jesus was complete control. It's not like begging for mercy or this or that, but it's like silence. Pilate, no. Don't you don't you know that I've got power to crucify you and to let you go? No power except for giving you from above. So how would you describe Jesus' answers to Pilate and Caiaphas? How were his answers to the two similar or different?
you'll see that Jesus explained more to Pilate than he did to Caiaphas. Maybe because Caiaphas knew the scriptures and about the Messiah, but Pilate probably wasn't aware. Well, Pilate is ignorant. Caiaphas was rebelling against God. And Jesus' response for sometimes silence is more powerful than words against a ridiculous accusation. Is Jesus defending his innocence? How interesting it's not. Perhaps by his silence. So why would he answer the way he did? himself aggressively because he knew it was his father's plan for him to die. Again, he knew every situation, what needed to happen, even orchestrated the time and the place. So going to chapter 33 now, questions here. What do you think about that in the way of, if you could create just one of some words, take a whole army fall on their backs <laughs> to get out of Page 248 in your book series. So, what do you think Pilate was trying to do by offering to release Jesus? Well, Jesus kind of, he didn't challenge him, but he was kind of like, he couldn't do it if he wanted to. It was like right after he was like, trying to release him. Sad his conscience. Trying to get out of any kind of liability. It's not mentioned here. I think it's in Matthew's gospel where it talks about where his wife comes to him and says, have nothing to do with this just man. I've suffered many things today in a dream because of him. So it seems likely he was trying to make everyone happy and get himself out of a difficult spot where he's being pressured to execute an innocent man, and he knew it. Do you think he was surprised by the Jews' response? Probably. Confounded Jews, you can never figure him out. So, why would he allow the soldiers to torture Jesus when he believed Jesus was innocent? He's trying to figure out what he could do to get him released. Most likely, he didn't want to anger the crowd and damage his reputation as a political leader. Politics. So what do you think Pilate really believed about who Jesus was? He knew he was something special. He was like, we're in trouble. That was after they said, he claimed to be the son of God. Well, they said he made himself the son of God. But it said he was afraid. So he knew he's an innocent man, at the very least. And you knew all those worthless gods, and this was different. What does he do? He doesn't talk about in this gospel. I think it's in Matthew. What does he do when he finally turns him over? That I'm innocent. Which he wasn't. I'm innocent in the blood of this just man. What did they say in response to that? They got their wish. Yeah. Not their wish, but they got what they asked for. Literally. It's very interesting in the book of Acts when the high priest and in the first couple of chapters when they're bringing the apostles in and they're arresting them and talking to them the first time. It's like they're preaching and teaching them that they're forbidding them to do it. And they fill Jerusalem with their doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. What you just asked for? No, you don't really ask for what you want. So is there anything about his reactions, Pilate, reactions to Jesus that surprised you, given the fact that he was a powerful Roman official?
perhaps it's interesting that and kind of surprising how much the religious leaders of the Jews could manipulate them to do what they wanted. They knew it. they knew enough to enough to say to get them to do what they wanted. It's kind of interesting how you said when they wanted to change that you said and they came to the Jews to be about that on the signs. So when Jesus said it is finished, what do you think that it was? sacrificial work, sacrificial work of redemption and atonement which he paid our penalty and restored the possibility for people to have a fellowship with God. Of course, we didn't even look at the other gospel that talks about no, when he's on the cross no darkness covers the land for, I think, three hours. And that's no, my God, my God, why is thou forsaking me? That the heavens itself were angry. So imagine you were a Jew who followed Jesus and been amazed by his teaching and miracles, but had not yet become convinced that he's God. What would you have thought about the crucifixion? Would it have made you more or less likely to believe in it? Disciples will run away. Yeah. And it didn't seem like there's yeah, a few people. Kind of like the, the soldiers and stuff, but you know, when it went dark and everything. Like at those moments, some people realize, oh. And that earthquake, the yeah. rocks were rent. The centurion in charge, though, yeah. truly, this man was the son of God. Maybe you would have realized that uh, yeah, he really was, but maybe he did die. So it's hard for a human being. Yeah. Like, what do you think the Jews thinking when they're watching all that? Are they even noticing, or are they so never bad? Yeah. They find God. Too busy making fun of them. When Caiaphas was talking about when Lazarus died, yeah. they said somebody. It must be that some someone will die. Of course, yeah. Then, uh, it, I think it's when either it is finished or bottom of the hands come up the spirit, and the veil of the temple is rent from the top to the bottom. So, what made Jesus die more quickly than the thieves? No man taketh my life from me, but I give it up, that I may take it again. Men could not kill him. He gave his own life, willingly, at the right time. Again, a bone of him shall not be broken. And again, it's interesting if you think we didn't even look at it here on the Gospels when Joseph comes to beg the body of Jesus, Pilate marvels as if he's dead already. And it says he asked the centurion basically to check, make sure, and then found them. Yeah, and that's what he gave him. Jesus' body. Again, Jesus died quicker than normal in a crucifixion and stuff. So next Sunday, it talks about the resurrection and the first post-resurrection appearance. And then actually, the next lesson, the, the last lesson in this book is actually a very interesting one. The post-resurrection fishing trip. And it's actually, we're going to talk about um, fishing methods at that time. It's really interesting and what all was going on. There's some pictures and stuff. So it'll be a pretty neat lesson for you to actually be able to, to see what's going on. The, uh, the fish that were actually in there, actually kind of interesting. You've probably eaten them, actually. St. Peter's fish, as they're called. Or a mushed in Arabic. Should I give you the teaser? Should I give you the teaser of what it is? It actually looks uh well. let's get one right there. Oh. 
pretty good. Anyway, so now you can see all those pictures and stuff there. But, but I hope you learned some things today, and that gives you deeper appreciation for your Lord and what He went through for you. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for all that you've done for us and the lessons that you have in it. And that we just get an appreciation for you and your love for us and all that you've done. And that we would serve you. That we get a glimpse of you as Peter did. And it would motivate us to serve you more than before. And please help us this week as we are able to go... Um, um, go throughout our week and can, coming up to the Easter program again that we'd be able to just proclaim your truth you know, to those around us this Friday that there would be visitors that people would come and need to hear about you I mean if someone gets saved through this I mean that's the ultimate worth it but there will pray that there would be people there who need to hear the message so they can hear it and then we can deliver it to them through your word and again, help us as our, our preparations and things that have been put into that. I ask you just to be into that, that you would be in that um, on Friday night. And give us safety to get into our homes this evening and bring us back together again Wednesday. In Jesus' name, amen.